passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody. It's John Pollock here with your UFC 254 preview show. And it's a pleasure to welcome this man back to the program. He is the one and only Cody Saftik. The last time I talked to this man, it might as well have been 10 years ago. It was only February, I believe, but what a what a world of difference uh, since that time. Cody, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my mind how things changed. Uh, just an entire world since the last time we've gotten to talk. But yeah, John, I absolutely love when Habib Nurmagomedov or Conor McGregor or when Ronda Rousey would fight because I get to talk to you, you know, give me a show and allow me to come on the program. Always one of my favorite pieces. So uh, happy to be on as usual. Well, unfortunately, we are not doing this one in person. You are always an in-studio guest, and hopefully uh, by the by the next time, maybe we are able to be uh, able to be back uh, face to face. But nonetheless, uh, our whole audience happy to hear Cody Safik uh, in w- in whatever form. So we can start. Uh, I actually just want to quickly put a bow on uh, last weekend's card, and the main story coming out of the fight night card was uh, Brian Ortega, his first appearance that we had seen him since that that brutal fight with Max Holloway, and coming back, appearing reinvented, reinvigorated, and running through Chan Sung Jung over five rounds. How surprised were you from Ortega's performance, and was maybe the time off, did you look at that as a significant factor for the version of Ortega that he was able to produce on Saturday? Yeah, so not overly surprised. I ended up uh, actually picking Brian Ortega to defeat Korean Zombie, and I think that the time off is actually a good thing. A lot of the time we talk about layoffs and ring rust and how is this fighter going to come back and how are they mentally, and then you're going to factor in, not only was it a 33-month layoff, John, mm-hmm. but also the last time we had seen him, he absorbed 290 significant strikes at the hands of Max Holloway. How does that change a guy? But honestly, my expectation here is that Brian Ortega is a guy that's thrown a lot of progression every fight, his entire career. And it goes back to the Frank Yeager fight, where Frank Yeager had never been knocked out, had never been stopped. He was known for his legendary durability. Brian Ortega is a jiu-jitsu guy without any wrestling. How is he going to defeat Frank Yeager? But in the lead-up to the camp, you know, you, you talk to a lot of his coaches, and they went on record as being like, Brian has just dropped everything and is just focused on improving. He is improving his striking. They called that his striking would be next level going into the Frank Yeager fight, and it was. Now he comes into the Max Holloway fight, and unfortunately for him, he fights a once-in-a-generational talent, Max Holloway. That was the best version of Max we've ever seen, and Max is a Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer. So it's a tough go for Ortega, but it's a learning experience. See, every fighter's got to lose. You have to lose in order to realize, where did I go wrong? Where can I improve? And that's exactly what Ortega did. As soon as he loses, he reinvents himself the second time around. And he goes on record to say, you know what? After losing to Mac, I'm in the hallway or I'm in the elevator at the hospital. And I just thought to myself, I need to change everything. Now, you're seeing these improvements from him 
from him throughout his entire career, whether it be in his jiu-jitsu game in which he was a world champion black belt. Uh, he comes to MMA and all of a sudden, ah, geez, he's a work in progress. He's submitting guys. He's always losing the first two rounds. He loses the first two rounds to Thiago Tavares. He loses the first two rounds to Diego Brandao. He loses the first two rounds to Hanato Moicano. He probably loses the first two rounds to Clay Guida. And John, what does he do? Third round. He always comes back. There's a guy that's getting better. You give that guy 33 months off with his work ethic, his talent, and his athleticism, he's going to make a lot of improvements. He's motivated. And then, and then the other thing is, the last time you saw him, he's 27 years old. So he factors to be in his prime. He hasn't even reached his prime. He's 29 now. I honestly bought into this man will come out with better improvements, and I think he, he defeats Korean Zombie. Who, Korean Zombie, by the way, out, has not won a fight outside of round one since 2012. Now, yes, we can argue he would have beaten Yair Rodriguez had he not eaten that elbow. Yeah, with one every second counts. Every second counts, John. But the fact remains the same that outside of knocking guys out in the first round, there was ways to maybe take him into deeper waters and tire him out. And I thought that Brian Ortega was known for great cardio and great durability. He would be able to survive the first round, take him into those deeper waters, and expose him later. What I did not expect is he just came out right from the hop. It was a quick start. He won the first round. Second round was more competitive, but then obviously he dropped him with a spinning back elbow. And it was just a masterclass performance. And I, I really, really, really get excited now when I think about Brian Ortega and Alexander Volkanovsky because, again, does Volkanovsky shoot on him? He got the submission games. He keeps standing with him. I mean, he's, he's ever improving every time out. So very impressive, Brian Ortega. Yeah, and I think everything worked out perfectly for Ortega in the sense that, number one, you do have a different champion. I think that's a very easy sell on people of th- this version of Brian Ortega. And secondly... I think it was great the fact that we got to see 25 minutes of this Brian Ortega as opposed to if he had come out and just clipped Korean Zombie three minutes in and I think there would have been questions lingering. Like I can't tell you today that a Francis Ngannou is going to present a much different fight for Stipe Miocic than the first time they fought. Maybe he will, but I can't say that for sure. This 25 minutes, it's it's quite an overhaul of Brian Ortega and I think it makes him – a f- completely fresh challenger uh, in it for that featherweight championship whenever that fight happens. And the fact that you have Alexander Volkanovsky, I think people are craving a new challenge for Volkanovsky as close as those Holloway fights were. I mean, this seems to be the, the slam dunk only option to make, uh, barring any unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, no doubt. I think if you look at it for Brian Ortega, getting the five rounds, as you mentioned, is critical for him because he had been off for so long. If he goes out there and gets three minutes of ring time, and it's like it's not good for him. 25 minutes is, you know, a fight and a half. For a lot of these guys, it's almost two fights in the UFC. So getting getting five rounds into you under your belt, it kind of just puts him back on track. And I, I think he's a viable number one contender because even though Max Holloway definitely had uh, very good fights with Volkanovski and you could run that back. People are not really itching to see the trilogy right away. Instead, you write, you run Brian Ortega versus Volkanovski. Option A there, Volkanovski wins. Great. We solidify him as a champion. He's one of the best to do it. And uh, now we can revisit that Max Holloway fight. Option B, Max wins. You don't do the fourth fight right away, John. Well, you got Brian Ortega. Here's somebody that Max, if, if Max, sorry, if Max defeats, or um, Brian Ortega wins the title on Volkanovski, you run Max versus Brian Ortega. And that's a way that, you know, Max can get back into a, a championship title fight versus Brian instead of running back a trilogy match with Volkanovski. But either way, I think that those three guys are probably going to end up fighting each other uh, a few times because the division is a good division. But at the top, um, it's really exciting to see Ortega come back into it. And it's nothing against Korean Zombie, but at 33 years old, you know, could he have had a good fight with Volkanovski? Yes, potentially. 
But it, it's nice to see these younger guys emerge, and Ortega's got the skill, he's got the potential. He just needed to go out there and get a big win to put himself on everybody's map again. And that's exactly what he, uh, what he did on Saturday. Shifting over to Saturday, we've got UFC 254. You can set your alarm clock because it will be the prelim starting at 10.30 in the morning, uh, which for, you know, so often, Cody, I am always envious of the West Coast when it comes to these UFC cards. Not on Saturday. This will be a 7.30 a.m. start time for our friends in Vancouver. Yeah, awful. Yeah, yeah. And it's a big card, too. I'm surprised that the UFC went with this angle. I mean, you would think that the best way to get a highest buy rate would to go be to go Saturday night, right? Saturday night's proven for you. I mean, Masvidal and Usman did 1.3 million views on a Saturday night. So, like, why not try to keep that model going? But they want to run an afternoon card, which could affect them a little bit. But uh, all the same, it's a fight that everybody wants to see. So it probably still sells pretty good. So I'm sure you have broken this fight down extensively. Uh, for Khabib Nurmagomedov, I think it's, it is always the the what-if scenario and kind of cherry-picking certain fights that he has had where it might give you a glimmer of of optimism of where can this fighter be exploited. When you're going through the library of fights for Khabib Nurmagomedov, what are the fights that you continually come back to that sort of represent that that opening that a Justin Gaethje style can exploit? Okay, so first and foremost, yeah, he hasn't shown a whole lot of holes in his game, but if you want to look at the holes that he does have in his game, you go way back to the Gleison-Tebow fight once upon a time. Mm-hmm. The Tebow fight, he struggles to take Gleison down. So we all know Gleison as, you know, he ended up popping uh, by Usada a few times, but he was a little fire hydrant of a man who was very difficult to take down. Once Khabib was unable to take him down, Gleison starts to end up having the upper hand in the grappling, and probably, if you look back, Jordan Breen scores at 29-28 for um, Tebow over Nurmagomedov, I think like another member of Sherdog, MMA Junkie, uh, MMA Mania, a bunch of media outlets scored 30-27 T-Bow over Habib. Yet they scored the fight for Habib. So as much as he is undefeated, in a lot of people's eyes, he lost the Glyson T-Bow fight once upon a time. Moving forward from that, you have the Michael Johnson fight. Michael Johnson was a guy that wrestled in junior college. Maybe the idea was that he could stuff a couple of Khabib's takedowns and was able to deliver some of that notorious firepower he does. He does chin check Khabib in the first round. It's a good punch. It kind of, I don't say it like, it was like a stinging shot. It kind of wobbles Khabib a little bit. He kind of like misses a step, but ultimately he wears the punch really well. And you go to the McGregor fight. McGregor is somebody who's not really, he's not known as a wrestler, obviously. I mean, he's a traditionally a striker. He's put some work into his wrestling game, but he's not a diehard wrestling in the gym all the time. He looked much improved, I thought, in the beat fight. was able to step a few of those takedowns and get the fight standing in some spots was just unable to capitalize on it, right? So how do you defeat Khabib? Okay, first of all, you need to stuff these takedowns. And Don, when you look at the guys that he's fought, here's a face out for you. Khabib's been fight, fighting in the UFC since 2012. I believe this is his 12th fight in the UFC. 13. Or he's had 12 fights in the UFC. Yeah, he's had 12. Over the span of eight years, he's not exactly someone that has competed 20 times. He gets flip side to that Sam Alvey, who's also on the card, who's been fighting in the UFC since 2014. This will be his 19th appearance for the roster. But does it seem like Sam Alvey's fought, you know, nearly twice as much as Habib? No, no. In the, in, in the lesser time frame, doesn't. But that's the problem with Habib. He's had trouble making 155 pounds. He's big for the weight class. He's had injuries. He's getting a little bit older now. He just lost his father. All of these things have to be taken into consideration on can he be defeated? Absolutely. 
Now, because there's fandomship, right? When you look at Ronda Rousey and you look at Conor McGregor and you look at John Jones, everybody just automatically assumes they can't lose. They will not lose. They cannot lose. There's no way to defeat them. But when Ronda loses in humiliating fashion, all of a sudden, oh, geez, well, I guess I guess she was beatable. John, Jones hasn't lost, but you know, a split decision over Thiago Santos, a split decision over Dominic Reyes, uh, went to decision with five round decision with Anthony Smith and Auburn St. Crew, like. You know, he's there for the taking, of it, but but you have this rat McGregor. You know, why has McGregor got this? Oh, but it's an aura because the casual fan knows you. So in Khabib's case, because he defeated McGregor, because he's undefeated, because he already had a big name in Russia and in Europe, it just seems like everybody's just drawn this conclusion that the man cannot be defeated. But again, point to you, if you can keep this fight standing, you can exploit him. Now, even though he's only fought the 12 times in the UFC, well, let's, let's run back and see some of those guys spot, John. You look at, okay, Justin Poirier's last time out. That's probably his best victory, I'd say, on his resume. Justin Poirier, not a wrestler. Didn't wrestle collegiately. Um, went to American Top Team, learned how to wrestle, can wrestle, but not a wrestler by definition. Wants to keep the fight standing, wants to let his hands go. The other fights that you see Khabib in, Edson Barbosa, he's, he's not a wrestler. Um, Ally Quinta, Ally Quinta did wrestle collegiately in junior college for, I think, one season. But by definition, again, not a wrestler. You know, he's somebody that's just going to keep the fight standing, box you up. Khabib has fought an entire plethora of guys that aren't wrestlers. The last time he fought an actual wrestler was 2013 when he fought Pat Healy. You know, it's just so long ago. I think in Justin Gaethje's case, Gaethje's been wrestling since he's four years old. You know, he's a two-time state champion in high school. He wrestled in a D1 program in Northern Colorado uh, for four seasons. Did well. By all accounts, he's a good wrestler. At Elevation Fight Team, he's surrounded by good wrestlers. And you see these guys in Elevation and their cardio, whether it be Curtis Blades, a heavyweight, 265 pounds, best cardio in the heavyweight division. Uh, Corey Sanhagen, not slowing down. Drew Dober, just on a complete resurgence right now. Everybody coming out of Colorado, they've got this cardio. They're wrestling hard. They're grinding hard. Just, just, Justin Gaethje's got a cast iron chin. The only guys that knocked him out, Eddie Alvarez and Justin Poirier. Those guys have the, the firepower to back it up. Habib doesn't have that striking. So it all comes down to Justin Gaethje stuffs some of these takedowns, works that low leg kick. Not the leg kick, John. The low calf kick. Get him with the low calf kick. It's harder for him to, to counter and take you down by catching one of them, and it's just going to slow down his mobility, slow down his ability to shoot off it, cause him to have to stand with you in some exchanges, and chip away at this guy and beat this guy. Justin Gaethje, definitely a live dog. The odds makers have it like minus 330 uh, Habib Nurmagomedov, but I think a lot of that price is baked into the fact that he's just such a big star. Yeah, and I think that one of the one of the tags that I think rode Gaethje, especially when he came into the UFC, was that abandon game plan and just have your your fight of the night. But I mean, if you've been paying attention to the most recent fights from Justin Gaethje, I mean, we have seen, um, I don't want to say completely defensively minded fighter because I wouldn't go that far to say things, but I mean, the Tony Ferguson fight, that was the, to me, the culmination of Justin Gaethje realizing like what, what style is going to be most beneficial to him putting W's on the board? And we saw on the Embedded series this week just that shot in his hotel room. And what do they have on the whiteboard? Stay in the center. Do you think that it comes down to something as simple as Justin Gaethje being able to control the center? And as you said, if this guy can thwart takedowns, um, you know, th- those opening rounds become very important for, for Gaethje in kind of establishing this and frustrating Khabib while at the same time not not falling back into poor habits of the past. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's gone on record saying multiple times that Khabib's biggest advantage is well, as soon as your back touches the cage. As soon as he touches the cage, then he's able to get his grip on you. He's able to get double underhooks on you. He's able to get his hands around you. 
as soon as he gets a body lock or as soon as he's basically able to just grip you, he just peels you to the ground. So controlling the center of the octagon is going to be huge for Justin Gaethje. I think hence controlling the center of the octagon, landing his punches, landing the low calf kick, he's probably going to look for a later round finish, especially if he can bank a couple early rounds because you just don't know how the judges are going to see it. You know, if he's the undefeated star in that part of the world, he's obviously really popular. Um, he's a champion. Like, unless it's a very, very decisive decision, he's not going to want to have this as a close fight. But those early rounds are going to be very important. It's so ironic to think that Justin Gaethje's entire career leading up to, say, the Tony Ferguson fight, just like you mentioned, has been fight of the night, fight of the year, reckless abandonment, absolutely no game plan. Kind of skill, no game plan. And yet the man's coached by Trevor Whitman, one of the finest minds in the game. You know, a man known for excellent game plans. And it almost feels like both of those things are starting to merge. You know, Justin Gaethje is finally coming to that point in his career where he realizes Okay, okay, I can... I, the Tony Ferguson fight, for example, he takes it on short notice. The event got canceled due to COVID, so he got an additional, like, six weeks on it. But he's, he's mentioning, well, oh, I'm not in great shape. I'm going to try to force the action early and try to take out Tony within two rounds. Everybody leading up to that fight, John, is talking about, well, Gaethje's got two rounds to knock out Tony Ferguson. And if he doesn't, Ferguson is just going to take control of three, four, and five. Did not play like that. Gaethje came in, he pieced him up every round. Um, again, you know, his cardio is there, his... his his striking there. The one thing nobody knows about him is the wrestling because Justin Gaethje does not choose to wrestle. He doesn't go out there and wrestle ever because he's always trying to have these fight of the nights and wants to please the fans. He's not out there wrestling. And likewise, his opponents, they don't really ever shoot on him as well. So there's a foregone conclusion here that, oh, well, you know, he's just going to take him down. I'm not necessarily seeing it that way. Given the fact that this is a five-round fight, do you look at that as a... I mean, does that favor Nurmagomedov in the sense that I think in a three-round fight, you can look at, you know, the ability to stave off those takedowns. Does this become, uh, you know, quicksand for Justin Gaethje once we're looking at rounds four and five? Or are you expecting the opposite, that th- this could be wearing out Nurmagomedov, that if, if Justin Gaethje has the game plan to thwart these takedowns, that's going to expend a ton of energy from Nurmagomedov in those first three rounds that rounds four and five almost become a new fight if Nurmagomedov has to adjust on the fly at that point while Gaethje is going in with that mindset. Agreed. I'm not sure how much you can take away from the ally Pinta fight, but if you remember in that fight, Khabib comes out the first two rounds and just puts on a wrestling clinic, actually takes down ally Quinta six times. And then as the fight progresses, he stops taking him down. He stops trying to wrestle. He instead relies on just striking the lane. He goes five rounds with ally Quinta and a guy who took the fight on quite literally a day's notice and I, later in the fight, just wasn't really wrestling, which was relying on a striking. Al wasn't throwing a ton. Not exactly the most exciting fight. I'm not sure how much you can take away from that. But if you put that exact same scenario in this Gaethje fight, if it goes, if they go out there and Nurmagomedov is going hard for these takedowns, he's wrestling hard for these takedowns, he's exerting energy. And three rounds, three, four, and five, Gaethje has good cardio. Gaethje's still there. Khabib all of a sudden doesn't have the cardio to push. You know, because he's a chain wrestler, right? It's not as easy as just, well, I'll just take him down that one time. His takedowns are largely set up by moving over to, you know, three different techniques before eventually getting you to the ground. So that's why it's going to be a lot of scrambles. And Gaethje's just shown through the fights that he has been taking down, he scrambles right away. It's very hard to hold down unless you got him tired. But he's not getting tired. He's at full camp for this fight. Again, he's at altitude training. It all makes a lot of sense. And And I would really, really hate to speculate too much on the, angle of losing your father because I can't relate to that. I've never lost my father. My father and I are very close. Khabib and his father are obviously the closest. 
Imagine being in a world title fight and it's going into the championship round and it's a close fight and having your father look you in the eyes and tell you, this is what you need to be doing or this is what needs to be done. It's a motivational factor. Now you don't have that. That's gone. Is there not an adrenaline dump? Is there not a part of you that maybe this training camp wasn't? Maybe you're not getting the absolute best version of him that you've ever seen. And he's talked about retirement and he's talked about, you know, well, I'll win this one and then I'll fight George St. Pierre and maybe Connor gets the one more time because, you know, the money's just too good for that rematch not to happen. But he's already looking at the end a little bit, so to speak. He's done everything. He's done everything times two and his legs he solidified. So guys like that, that kind of got one eye out the door. Uh, I think he does engage. This is all he knows. This is, he's bred for combat. Like he wants us more than anybody. I know every title challenger wants it, but He's very mentally strong, and, and I feel like he's in a good place. So he's got the goods to deliver it. And I'm not saying I'm going to I'm discrediting Khabib, and I think Gaethje's just going to go out there and put on a clinic on him. I just mean it goes back to the Ortega versus Korean Zombie fight. People love Korean Zombie. He's a name. He's somebody that's delivered in the past. You know what you're getting yourself into. You automatically take him. He's the betting favorite. You lean towards his side. Ortega, there was the unknowns. Well, what if he did get better? Well, this is a guy that's shown in his career that he's extremely talented. And what if he puts it all together? He comes down, he puts it all together. Justin Gaethje's a very talented guy for his entire career, and it looked like in the last fight against Tony Ferguson, he was starting to put it together. What if he comes out here and he puts it all together, John? It'll be and new at the end of the night. Actually, not at the end of the night, at the end of the afternoon. Yes, yes, going into the evening. Uh, you, you look at the, the two different scenarios here, and, and it becomes very interesting. I mean, the, the winner of this fight, it it sets up many different directions, given that a Nurmagomedov victory, as you mentioned, this guy has talked about the notion of ending things at 30-0. and 0, That would provide one more fight. He clearly wants George St. Pierre to be that fight and does not want Conor McGregor to be that fight. Conversely, I mean, we come out of a scenario where Justin Gaethje is your lightweight champion. I mean, that just throws chaos into this division. It uh, To me, it really expedites this Conor McGregor-Dustin Poirier fight of, you know, a guaranteed fight for the winner against Gaethje. But, I mean, you look at these different scenarios. I mean, they're just, they're endless based on whoever wins this this championship. As Conor McGregor's shadow is over top of this, I mean, where where are you seeing the the pathway of Conor McGregor, and does it begin January 23rd as has, you know, been expected, but not made official yet with Dustin Poirier? Yeah, I honestly think if you're the UFC, you've got your fingers crossed and you're praying that Khabib wins the fight. Because even though there's a lot of options for Gaethje, if he was to win and that's exciting and all this and that, it would throw a massive wrench in the ultimate plan of Khabib versus George, right? Especially if that's George's 30th, or that's Khabib's 30th fight he's going for this record. He's going essentially down as the greatest fighter of all time. And he's just so happened to be fighting the greatest fighter of all time, right? Screw John Jones. These are the two greatest fighters of all time. If they were going to clash with that kind of stakes on the line, even if it was a catchway and it wasn't for a title, like I don't even care. Just let them fight at a comfortable weight between them. 55 is the one for George, you know, do it at 62. Like I don't care, but just make, make the fight happen. That would be the biggest fight in UFC history. That'd be the biggest fight that they could possibly put together. If Habib doesn't fight George, because, you know, George is half flaky these days, whether he actually wants to compete or not. I mean, he doesn't owe nobody nothing. He can do whatever he wants. But if they don't do the George fight, then they have the McGregor fight, even though I don't really care to see that fight. Obviously, Habib doesn't care to see that fight. There's just too much money on the table because McGregor's going to talk a good game. They're both big stars. 
uh, it just it just makes a lot of sense to run that one back if he's just gonna you know it's a good payday to end things on perfect. But the U on the UFC's perspective, if we can market Habib versus George, we're gonna make a ton of money. And if we can market Habib versus Connor, we're gonna make a very nice chunk of money. Now, if Justin Gaethje wins the title, George St. Pierre is not fighting Justin Gaethje. No, never gonna happen. One. George would never do it. He's not going down to 55 to fight Gaethje, too. They're actually friends. They trained together way back in the day. Uh, Crutch Training Center guys, you know, um, they're, they're friendly. It's not, never going to happen. George is, George is a smart guy. Never going to happen. Uh, is, is Conor McGregor going to fight George? No. George would have probably tried to put that fight together already. I, I don't know. Uh, is Justin Gaethje going to fight McGregor? McGregor seems like he, he's asking for it, but I, deep down, I don't think that's a fight you want to make if you're the UFC. You'd rather have, fight, have McGregor fight a more winnable fight, kind of more of a favorable fight for him that has a big name attached to it. Him versus Tony Ferguson would actually be funner than him versus Justin Gaethje, but again, it's a title fight that we'll be able to sell anything with McGregor involved. And that's where it comes down for McGregor. He literally fight anybody. Like, it doesn't matter if he actually got that Diego Sanchez fight, which, by the way, is never going to happen. People would still watch it. That's the bottom line. They'll watch him fight absolutely anybody. So there's fun fights for him in the division. I'd like to see him fight Ferguson just because stylistically it's a fun fight. Ferguson, even though he's coming off a loss, he's still a big name opponent. And, you know, people, people like him. People would probably favor him in that fight. So it's a good one to put together. And Connor could potentially go out there and pull it off. But he's got to win something, John. He's got to win more than just a quick Donald Cerrone fight to prove he's back before he's fighting the top three guys in the division. So I'd like to see him, if he's serious about fighting, I'd like to see him take another step up, another mid-class guy, mid-to-higher-class guy. And then, if he's showing, okay, he's legit, then beat Dustin Poirier like they're talking about. That that would be good to beat Poirier. Then you can fight one of those guys. But for him to just sit on the sideline and jump into a big fight, I don't know if it's in his best interest because he just doesn't get the rounds under him. Yeah, I I have to imagine that this Poirier fight happens January 23rd. I think if it's a win, it's they are going to move heaven and earth to put together that title fight, whether it's with Nirmaga Madoff or, I mean, whoever is lightweight champion coming out of this. I guess it ultimately comes down to like, I, I don't believe it's like some act or some bargaining uh, strategy by Nurmaga Madov. I think he has absolutely no desire to give this man what he wants. He believes he has this victory and doesn't is not financially motivated. I think that's very clear. I think you can tell the ones that are like it's a strategy to get the best offer possible. I really don't get that sense from Khabib. This is not about money for him with this McGregor fight. He has no desire to grant him that. Yeah, yeah, that's very fair. I think if Conor McGregor had $100 million and Habib Nurmagomedov had $50 million and you told Habib, you know what, if you put this fight together, you'll have 150 and, you know, he's going to get, a, he'll get 100 million, whatever. He would turn it down. He would turn down any sum of money that you would offer him that benefited Conor McGregor. Because honestly, Habib is a, he's a righteous man. He's a religious man, whether you believe in his beliefs or not. Uh, he honestly does believe in like his own greater good. And he's not a sellout. He's not someone who's just looking for a payday. He's made enough money to support himself a dozen times over. Like Gaethje's on record saying, you know what, if I win this fight, I, I just secured my parents' financial stability. That's a very cool thing for Justin Gaethje to say. But uh, Habib's already secured his family's financial stability 10 times over, right? Like he's, he's set for life. With Connor. Khabib can go to bed at night knowing that Connor will blow it all and he'll end up in jail and he'll end up a broke man. And he'll end up in a 30 for 30 episode where they talk about the rise and fall of Connor McGregor because he's a loose cannon 
and he's headed in a downward spiral. Whether or not he's getting fights with Manny Pacquiao in the Philippines, or he's fighting in Dubai, or he's going to get this Dustin Poirier fight, his life just seems to be on a trajectory of downward spiral. So with Habib, it's like, I don't need to give this guy a career payday. And if you're McGregor, the two guys that you could fight that would probably garner the biggest paydays for you would be a boxing match versus Pacquiao and, uh, and a rematch versus Habib Nurmagomedov for the lightweight title. Or if George, for whatever reason, was to fight um, Connor, that would obviously do very big business as well. Now, uh, just uh, finishing up the lightweight discussion, uh, the man who is literally in the shadows is Michael Chandler this week. Uh, we are talking before the weigh-in, so I mean, chaos could always occur. Uh, but for Michael Chandler, I mean, he... I think if nothing else, I mean, this guy demonstrated being a team player uh, coming in and being willing to be the backup all week long in case something happened. But uh, assuming that he is not fighting this weekend, what is your next move that you sit down and discuss uh, Michael Chandler's first fight? Uh, when and and who would you want it with? Yeah, so I think if as far as Michael Chandler, you just got to put him in a big fight right away. If the Conor Poirier fight isn't happening, then I think the move is Poirier versus Chandler. I know that there was discussions. I know that apparently it was allegedly turned down on Poirier's side over a financial discrepancy. But all the same, I, if the title's obviously off the table, you got Habib fighting Justin Gaethje tied up. Okay, perfect. Then the number one contender was probably Dustin Poirier. So Chandler, they're paying him a lot of money to be here. I believe he's, you'll be able to correct me on this. Is he 34, John? Uh, Chandler? Yes, he is 34. I'll double check that. But right. That's... So they, they got to move him along. His only problem in Bellator is like maybe a tad of durability issues. We saw him shatter his ankle. Didn't shatter his ankle. Like somehow rolled his ankle and just what, not able to continue. And then in the Patricio Freite fight, you know, fights a man that's quite literally half the size and uh, just a one hell of a shot. At his age, and his status and his mileage, I would say that you've got to get him into a title fight as quick as you can, and that would probably regard it, need him fighting the number one contender. If Poirier's turning this down and saying he doesn't want it, then you go Michael Chandler versus uh, Tony Ferguson. Tony Ferguson, don't know what he's doing. Apparently, he wants some more money as well. I think it would be unreal to see Conor McGregor versus Michael Chandler. Unfortunately, it's not a sellable fight for the UFC, because one, it's a Bellator champion as opposed to a Tony Ferguson or Dustin Poirier or anybody that's just been on UFC screen. Like Michael Chandler's a virtual unknown to a lot of the casual fans, only really hardcore known. And second of all, it would be absolutely disastrous if the Bellator champion Michael Chandler came over and defeated Conor McGregor in the UFC. So that, that's not a viable fight right off the hop. So really, the two fights that, that he could do would be Ferguson or Dustin Poirier. Now, let's say Poirier turns it down money and, and Ferguson turns it down because of money. And Connor, it obviously makes no sense to make it. And Khabib and Gaethje are both tied up in this title fight. Uh, then, you know, honestly, Drew Dober would be a very difficult fight for him. Uh, you know, like it's probably lower upside if you got caught by Drew Dober and you were to get knocked out. The other fight I think makes a lot of sense would be a more favorable matchup for Chandler would be Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee back down to 55 from 170. Um, you know, he's got a name in the division. He's got a good style, but he's got a wrestling heavy style with some decent striking. Chandler would be able to match his wrestling tip for cat, would also probably have, you know, a technique advantage, whether he got caught or anything. And the last thing for Chandler is like, I almost feel, I almost feel if I'm Michael Chandler, I'm trying to get on a good co-main event on a high status card. Like I wouldn't want to fight five rounds off the hop. I'd want to fight five rounds just for the title, but that's a lot of mileage to be taking. He's already fought a lot of five round fights. 
The last thing he wants to do is another Benson Henderson one fight. I know he killed him the second time. Mm-hmm. But the longer these fights go, man, it just starts adding up. And now you're losing rounds. And now you're getting tired. And now you're getting beat up. His fights with Eddie Alvarez, legendary. But it's like, it's just a lot of wear and tear on you. So if I'm him, I'm trying to get a high-profile co-main event so I can go out there, do my thing for three rounds, definitely secure two rounds, and just really put a high-level uh, pace on them. Worst-case scenario, I'm a little tired and third, I lose the third. I'm still going to win a decision. Um, fighting a five-round, like headlining a fight night or something like that, even though they might try to do that with them, that's not in the best interest of them. Yeah. I, I think it was Chandler this week on, on, on Embedded who had said, you know, I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. I, I think he realizes, okay. like, in a perfect world, it would have been his last contract that was up that he comes to the UFC. But he's 34, which doesn't mean things are done. But, like, it's a small window. In a speed division that lightweight is, um, you know, this this is a critical 12 months for him to maximize. And I would say this is not someone that's going to be just willing to sit out and wait for the best opportunity. I think he's going to realize that, you know, the – uh, it's go time now, and maybe maybe I have to eat it on the front end uh, of an offer that comes my way for a fight. But my hope is that I've got 24 months to really maximize uh, my physical peak that I'm at now. 34 to 36. That's that's about like we're talking about Khabib here looking to wind things down. Guys, two years younger than Chandler. Yeah, it, the difference is Habib's come out of all of his fights unscathed, right? And yeah, Chan- Chandler's had some wars. Yeah. Whereas Chandler's got the Eddie Alvarez fights, which are legendary, right? He's got the Patricio Freite fight, which he got hit very bad. The Benson Henderson fight. And people forget low-key about the beatings Will Brooks put on him. Will Brooks came to the UFC and was supposed to be the next big thing. Yeah. Bellator released him because they physically didn't have anybody for him to fight. He completely ran through the division and was, wasn't even exciting. He came to the UFC and was just an absolute dud. Non-factor, released from the UFC, PFL, non-factor, fought in Korea, non-factor. Glyson Tebow beat him in, in Korea, actually. Um, bringing things back to old Glyson Tebow. But it's a, it's a talent gap, right? And it's a big lights gap, and it's a, it's, a, it's a whole different dimension. So that's why Chandler would be nice to come over and fight you know, one of these mid-range guys on their way up instead of coming in and right away jumping in there against Murder's Row. But Poirier let an interesting tidbit slip when he discussed why he turned down the fight, saying, it's disrespectful to me that this guy comes into the UFC, it's his first fight in the UFC, and he's getting paid more money than I do, his first fight in the UFC. So think about that, because Dustin Poirier's been fighting in the UFC for nearly a decade, has had lots of fight of the nights, has had high-profile fights, has a nice contract. So they brought in Michael Chandler, for Boku money. And John, you've been around a very long time. We've seen this time and time again. The UFC is giving you big money. They're choosing your opponent and you have no say in it and you're taking it and they're going to give you someone stiff off the get-go. That's why he's on standby for this fight. And, you know, you said, oh, you know, he's being a team player. Like, they're paying him very well to be a team player. He understands this is my run. They're going to give me some money to stay ready. If the fight doesn't fall through, no problem. I'll just jump back into camp next week, two weeks from now, get ready for my next go around. And, you know, if I can bank three or four high profile fights in the UFC, that'll be more than I made, double what I made in Bellator fighting there for, you know, 15 fights. I think in a perfect world, the scenario that comes out of this is that you can finalize this McGregor Poirier fight, announce that. Ferguson and Chandler to me is like these are kind of two loose ends that no one's going to complain about that fight happening but ultimately you are dealing with listen a lot of these fighters that realize hey I'm I'm going through 
my physical prime right now, these wars, I can't do these wars forever. Dustin Poirier and Ferguson clearly are at that point of their careers, and they're going to fight for getting what they feel that they're needing to be paid to do these fights. So these are enormous fights that these guys want to be compensated to what they believe is is fair market value. So it's like that's the whole chess match of matchmaking this division. But uh, if if all the cards can play out uh, properly, uh, I, I think you could have, you know, a hell of a lightweight lineup of fights coming up over the next six months that uh, and then produces a series of matches with the winners at the end of it. Like 2021 could be an enormous year for the lightweights, but that is contingent on a lot of things falling in place. Well, absolutely. And like when I see Chandler come to the UFC, my initial thought is like, man, match him up with Benio Darius, match him up with, you know, Drew Dober, match him up with uh, Charles Oliveira wants to come back up to 155 pounds. Like those fights to me, extremely exciting. It's because he's making that kind of money. He's not fighting Drew Dober. He's no. not going to fight Benil Darius. I'd love to see him in Darius. Not going to happen. Instead, you're going to get him in one of those high-profile guys. But it's like you mentioned, you know, at this stage in his career, you just go for it. And yeah, yeah, I, Ferguson's taken a lot of damage. He knows he wants that big payday fight. Poirier's taken a lot of damage. He wants that big payday fight. McGregor, I, I don't even think he's taken all that much damage. To be honest with you, he's just he's made so much money, and he realizes he's just going to wait for big payday fights. Habib, you know, saying he's probably only got one, two fights left in his career. I haven't taken all that many minutes, but again, again, it was way out. Those, those other lightweights, those bottom guys, those top 10 at the bottom of the top 10, those top 15 guys, like that's when, you know, it's time for, oh, Habib stepping down. It's time for Islam Makhachev to step up, right? Um, Michael Chandler versus Islam Makhachev, sign me up. But he makes too much money. So, he's not, you know what I mean? Like he's going to have to take on a, a high profile guy. Um, just want to chat about uh, some other things uh, that highlight the main card. Obviously, the second biggest fight is Robert Whitaker and Jared Cannonier. I think a lot of people are focusing on Cannonier because you know it's the fresh fight for Israel Adesanya, who has literally called this guy out to be the next challenger. Um, unfortunately, he's fighting Robert Whitaker on Saturday, and yes, Robert Whitaker, this guy had those ten rounds with Yoel Romero. He lost the title, but uh, bounced back uh, earlier this year. Um, I mean, I'm favoring Robert Whitaker in this fight. This should be a hell of a middleweight fight. And, um, yeah, I, I just don't see it as like this easy path to victory for Jared Cannonier. If he's victorious, uh, he will leave no doubt as to being that next, uh, title contender. But what, what do you see for, out of, uh, Robert Whitaker here who, you know, we talk about fighters that have been through wars. Whitaker is part of that club. Yeah, yeah, and only 29 years old, so it's yes. almost a shame to think that oh, we're talking about Izzy Shawhorn, and he's still a young man. But yeah, we talk about the the 10 rounds with Yoel Romero or a life changing experience on their own, and then uh, and the the Darren Till fight. I didn't think he looked nearly as sharp as he used to. He was very hurt in the first round, dropped in the first round by Till, loses the first two rounds. That's really key here, right? And I think you're doing a number one, a bona fide number one contendership match. It should be for five rounds because you're getting ready to fight the champion and that's going to be five rounds. That should be that test. With Robert Whitaker, I honestly feel like the championship rounds would have definitely played towards his, his favor. He's got really good cardio. He's obviously got all that back class from a world champion. He's been in those later rounds. And a lot of the times in his, his fights, he's kind of a slow starter but he's able to dial it in the lane. You go back to the Till fight, for example. He loses the first two rounds. He's really hurt in the first round. Loses the second round. And then three, four, five, he's able to just start a little more output, you know, trying to get him down a little bit, 
he started dictating the pace and is able to win those championship rounds and win the fight. The Yoel Romero fight, you know, he, he hurt in these spots, but he worked his way back into the fight. Because him and Jared Cannonier is only scheduled as a three-round fight, I think that's a big disadvantage for him. Because if anything, Jared Cannonier is going to come out there and is a very, very solid fighter for the first two, maybe three rounds. But beyond that, we've not seen Jared Cannonier go five rounds before in his career. We don't know if he's going to start fatiguing. Uh, you know, when you have that much muscle, John, it's almost inevitable that after the first couple of rounds, you're going to start to slow down your pace a little bit. But in the three-round fight, I 100% see a pass for Jared Cannonier to come out there in the first two rounds. Whitaker gets off to a slow start. Cannonier lands a few better shots in the first couple of rounds, a few better leg kicks. And then in the third round, uh, maybe he slows down a little bit. Whitaker starts to take over. Now all of a sudden, the fight's going his direction. He's landing more volume, and the fight ends, and it's a 2-1 for Jared Cannonier. And so that's what kind of makes it dicey for Robert Whitaker. And again, only 29 years old, but he did look a lot different in the till fight in the sense he looked slowed down he looked a lot more hesitant to let his hands go i think that's a result of when you go out there and you let punches fly with yoel romero for for that uh, amount of time and you go out there and you fight all the best guys in the division and you're a world champion and then you know we always talk about the damage he took in the yoel fight but like what about the damage he took in the israel adesanya fight where he was knocked out like that all wears on you so now it almost it seems like there's a part of him that is hesitant to go and land hundred significant strikes because the more times that you're throwing, the more opportunities you're giving your opponent to try to counter on you. He seems to be trying to fight more of a, a counter style game plan. And I don't know. I think that Jared Canyon is a live dog. It's almost crazy to think you talk about the shop worn um, Robert Whitaker at 29 and yet Jared Canyon is 36 years old. And it's like, he's in the prime of his life right now, baby. He debuts in the UFC as a heavyweight. This is to Sean Jordan. Sean Jordan is the most athletic 265 pound man. That's ever graced the octagon. Wasn't the winningest one, but the most athletic. Um, you know, at heavyweight, at 205, it's like, what are his losses? He lost to Glover Texera, who uh, is a former title challenger. He lost to Jan Blakovitz, who's the ter- current world champion. And he lost to Dominic Reyes, who's a two time world title challenger. Those are the best guys at 205 pounds. And he, now he's undefeated at 185. Just looks good, looks dialed in, looks ultra motivated. This would be a life changing moment for a 36-year-old man from Alaska currently residing in Arizona because it's a great place to train, cheapy-cheapy, this would be absolutely big. Set him up for a title fight and go take on Israel Adesanya. So I really I, I really feel like um, with Robert Whitaker, he's gone on record in the past talking about, you know, the mental issues and getting a sports psychologist. And, you know, when he was the champion, he felt the pressure. And then he, a staph infection almost killed him. And he had multiple surgeries. He's known to have a bad knee. He's got a bad shoulder. Uh, he, and again, only 29, you know, bad weight cuts going down to 170 once upon a time, uh, knockouts previously in his career against Wonderboy Thompson, like all that just adds up over time. Whereas Cannonier again, again, he, he almost just seems like he's hitting that sweet spot in his career where it's like, this is his moment. This is his opportunity. I'm really interested in that fight. I know people were saying that this is a soft card outside of the main event. Uh, I disagree. I think there's a lot of nice fun fights on this card and I'm really intrigued by this co-main event. Uh, beyond the two fights that we've uh, broken down here, what's uh, what, what do you think is uh, flying under uh, under the radar, uh, main card or prelims? Well, as far as main card goes, obviously we got Walt Harris versus Alexander Volkov. I think it's interesting because Walt Harris had that you know the crazy Ania Blanchard story going into the Overeem fight, and people were really rallying behind him. But if you, as much as he said he was motivated for the fight with Overeem, when you saw him on the scales, he looked kind of out of shape. He looked a little bit overweight. I think he weighed in maybe at a career high, looked a little bit soft all around, and then didn't really have much more than a round. He, he's been really, really motivated in this camp, full camp, you know, looks to be in great shape and is talking about 
this is how I'm going to pay my respect. You know, I jumped into that Overeem fight. It was a little bit, you know, all over the place. I wasn't dialed in. I wasn't motivated. And it's a fun fight because Alexander Volkov's not a quick finisher. He's one of these guys that's going to just take you into deeper rounds, round two, round three, and just beat you on volume. And while Harris can't go round two and three, he's going to try to take you out there as quick as possible. So two fun heavyweights. I don't know if that's flying under the radar, but that's a fun fight for the main card. What I think could be flying under the radar for the entire card is Casey Keeney versus Nathaniel Wood. There's two guys that are 4-1 in the UFC, and I think that they're both really good prospects. I mean, Casey Kinney's a guy that was a former LFA world champion at 125 and 135. He's fought in a good, uh, stiff competition in the UFC, wins a parade board. You just see him getting better. He fought like five weeks ago against Tyler Alatang, uh, three weeks ago, sorry, and just put on an absolute clinic. I honestly think that he's a young guy. He's a fun guy. He's going to go out there and have a lot of exciting fights. And Bantamweight, I will go on record any day to say, is the best division in the entire sport, certainly in the UFC. Keith King is one of these guys that's going to have a lot of fun fights ahead of him. Flip side to that, Nathaniel Wood. You know, the man's trained. He's a prodigy of Brad one punch picket, and you kind of do see it in his game. Kind of reckless of his defense, but he's all offense. The two guys are basically, you know, young, up and coming guys. Uh, it's good matchmaking, pitting them against each other at this stage of their career. So I think that's a, that's a really fun fight as well. Oh, and then who could obviously forget Tai Tuivasa versus, uh, versus Stefan Struve, a seven foot man? And, uh, Dude, I, I know, I know you are on. you are the guy that will uh, break down odds and stuff. I wouldn't throw a penny at the. I have no idea what's going to happen in this heavyweight fight. Not a not a damn yeah, clue. Yeah, yeah. You know what? It really is a tale of two sides, right? Ty could walk out there and knock out um, Stefan Struve in the first round with a big overhand right. We've seen it so many times. Stefan Struve. Stefan Struve could land one outside trip on Ty Tuivasa and absolutely put on a grappling clinic in the middle. You know, like it could definitely go either way, but. I love with Stefan Struve, like, because I'm reading a lot these days. I'm sure you keep up with the news, obviously, but it's like, oh, LeBron James versus Colby Covington. And you see a lot of people be like, man, LeBron James would smash Colby Covington. He's six feet ten. He would smash Colby Covington. Okay, so that's like me saying, dude, Stefan Struve would be so good at basketball. He'd be way better than Muggsy Bogues. He's seven feet tall. He'd be a way better basketball player. He'd be a better basketball player than Kyle Lowry. He's seven feet tall. Like, I don't matter. And Stefan Struve is a prime example of that. Like, you've, you've never seen a guy not use any type of range be that big. The only other guys that are seven feet tall, like the semi-shilts, like he was excellent at keeping range. You know, key kick right up the middle, good sturdy Muay Thai, good high defense. Stefan Struve, it's like being so tall seems to be to like his detriment, you know, being that hittable head so high up in the air. Tai Tuivasa has been a massive letdown, but he's actually done the entire camp at AKA. And apparently by all reviews, he seems to be in really good shape, seems to be motivated. Khabib's obviously in camp. So well, I know Khabib, I think, did a lot of this camp in Russia. But all, all the same, Tai's uh, got himself a different look, at least, than what he's normally accustomed to. And apparently, he's, you know, making some progression. So he's still only like 27 years old. He's a former semi-professional rugby player. Like, I, I could see Tai Tuivasa getting better. But he needs to start now, baby, because it's a three-fight losing streak. And the days of headlining cards against Junior DeSantos are long gone. He's now losing to Sergey Spivak and fighting Stefan Struve. Like, it's it's a real gut-check moment now for Taito Ivasa. And that's what makes the fight interesting. I think he'll come out guns ablazing and uh, could potentially get that stop against Struve. Uh, final thing here before we uh, we wrap things up, uh, just taking a look ahead at next weekend. Uh, 45-year-old Anderson Silva is in search of his... Second win since 2013, uh, with that one win being Derek Brunson, which I would I would push back on that being a victory for Anderson Silva. But nonetheless, the record books reflect it. He will be taking on Uriah Hall. Uh, if you listen to his interview with MMA Junkie, he says, "Yes, this is this is going to be my last fight, probably." 
and then goes on to say, this this will be my last UFC fight. He left a lot for interpretation there. Where, what do you see being the future of Anderson Silva? Could we be looking at this man calling it a day at 45 years of age on Halloween night next weekend? Yeah, I mean, we all would love to see it just because he's so legendary. He has such a great reputation and you just hate to see him tarnish it. You hate to see, you know, the version of Anderson that's shown up over the past few years but it's still an attraction that people are willing to see and that's kind of the problem especially nowadays you see you know aged fighters show up on bare knuckle boxing senior you'll, you'll see these one-off shows like tito versus chuck liddell for golden boy promotions like as long as you have a name there's going to be someone that's willing to pay and people are always willing to throw money at it and see I, a lot of people might say oh man anderson you don't need the money always oh, doing it for a payday doing it for a payday i completely disagree i think anderson silver falls into the category of the person who's he's actually addicted to the rush of fighting somebody. I think it's, it's very much c- comparison. Like it's him and BJ thing. Penn will like, you know, they like in the, their ability to walk away, I think will be very parallel to, to one another. I don't, I'm with you. I don't think this is necessarily financially motivating. I think, you know, it's great to be paid, but I don't think that's the driving factor for someone that look at the injuries he has come back from that, you know, some other fighters would not. I, I'm with you. I think this is a guy that it's going to be, you know, he's going to be taken away, like kicking and screaming from fighting. I completely agree. So you go back to when he broke his leg against Chris Weidman, and that was a big signal of, like, this is the end here. People were calling out there. But there's an infamous video of his son being like, Dad, no more, no more, Dad, no more. And and then Anderson retired then. It was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, no more. And I you'll have to check it. It was like eight months after he broke his leg, he fought Nick Diaz. Like, like the leg could not have been healed. There's no way it was all the way healed. And he's in there fighting again because that's just what he does. Now think about financially motivating. He was fighting back in the IVC days where it was bare knuckle. It was in Brazil, in a small little dungeon shack, and nobody was getting paid. You were doing it because you want to fight people. He's fought a lot of times on the regional scene, comes to the UFC. He was one that he just wanted to fight. He would take fights at 205 pounds against James Irvin or Stefan Bonner just to quite simply fight John. The guy loves to fight. Some people are addicted to smoking. Some people are addicted to drinking. Some people are addicted to gambling. Some people are addicted to drugs. Some people are addicted to, I don't know, skydiving or rock climbing. or The, the, the man is addicted to the rush and the sensation that he gets fighting somebody probably over the whole training for it at this point. You know, fuck, I don't want to get up. Oh, I didn't need to swear there. Um, he doesn't want to get up and run the 5K. He doesn't want to get up and, you know, at 5 o'clock in the morning and do the route of that young contender that wants it real bad. But he don't mind going there and fighting. And a Bellator would take a man like that in a heartbeat. and give him someone else who's 38 years old or 40 years old. If he was fought on a Golden Boy show, you know, he would fight a Chuck Liddell at 205 pounds. He could fight somebody like that. You could see Chael Sonnen versus Anderson Silva selling decent on a card somewhere else. You could see, you know, he's never going to fight Vanderlei. But, uh, but I'm just saying there's some interesting fights, some of those older generation guys that you could run fights with. Uh, even if it was bare knuckle boxing, Anderson Silva versus Chris Lieben rematch, we're all tuning in. It's just what's going to happen. So in that regard, there's always going to be a platform for him. And yeah, financially, he doesn't really care. I think he just likes that competition. So he realizes if I stay in the UFC, they don't let me fight Chris Lieben. They don't let me fight 
Chael Sonnen. They don't let me fight Dave Rickles. You know, I can't fight those guys in the UFC. I have to fight Uriah Hall. I have to fight Derek Brunson. I have to fight Israel Adesanya and Daniel Cormier. Why? Because it comes right back to what we discussed about Michael Chandler. He gets paid too much money to not be fighting someone who's a name opponent, probably in the top 15 or top 20. So the UFC is just not a viable avenue for this version of Anderson Silva. He could cut a living, doesn't need to cut a living, but he could fight elsewhere and fight on. It's just, you, you hate seeing Michael Jordan play for the Washington Wizards, right? Like it almost pains you. And uh, I don't want to see Anderson Silva fight bare knuckle for BKFC. I don't want to see him fight uh, MVP at 185 in Bellator. Like I just, I, I, I don't really want to see that stuff. I'd like to, and you know what? It's up to him. Whatever he wants to do. He's a human being. He's an adult and he loves this. And uh, it's his call. But And I'll watch it too. So who am I to judge? Yeah, I, I think it'll be a very interesting post-fight next week, win or lose, if that announcement is specifically made by Anderson Silva, if he leaves the door open. And if the door is left open, where is the UFC? Because you can clearly see what the UFC's position is. Like they are looking at this as being his last fight. Um but we'll see. I think you always take those things with a grain of salt, especially in combat sports. But uh, a man that no one takes with a grain of salt is Cody Safdick. Cody, it's always great for you to join us. Uh, and where can people uh, hear more from you from uh, all of your great content that you put out there? Yeah, so the easiest place to reach me or just like see links I'm shooting out of various work I'm doing is obviously at Twitter at CJ Saftik. I'm doing the Dogger Pod, uh, the Dogger Pass podcast every Wednesday, so that's pretty good. Also, do a show for odds.com on Fridays. Give those guys a shout. And uh, yeah, I mean, as far as the pandemic goes, life's been pretty good. Things have been going around, and you know, baseball takes, they're eventually going to finish. What do you do? You wait around football, you know, they're doing it week to week. Like, what do you do when the season's done? NHL is done right now. Like fighting is a consistent all year round sport. UFC seems to have a plan put in place. They're running these shows out. So, I mean, it's never ending crime, but yeah, I know a lot of your audience are pro wrestling fans. I myself, big pro wrestling fan, definitely was 90s era. Of course, of course, I'm sure everyone hears that. But uh, yeah, if you're interested in fighting at all, or you're new to it and you want to, you want to discuss anything whatsoever, give me a shot over at uh, CJ Saftik over at Twitter perfect stuff cody thanks so much for joining us we'll definitely have you back in the near future and that is going to wrap it up folks we will be back on saturday with our ufc 254 post show phil chair talk will be joining me we will be going live youtube.com slash post wrestling immediately after the main event between khabib Nurmagomedov and justin gaethje where i mean cody is he's he's really leaning i think towards justin gaethje do, do, have you made an official pick cody or are, are you refraining from uh giving a pick Okay, so that's the tight part, right? It was, like you said, it's more of a on the gambling aspect. I think it's Justin Gaethje all day. I mean, you're getting him at plus 275, nearly three to one underdog. He's the value play for sure. But as far as, you know, picks, it's 50 50. Someone came up to you on the street and said, hey, 50 50, do you got Habib or do you got Justin Gaethje? I mean, how do you go against one of the greatest ever to do it? I honestly do believe that Habib Nurmagomedov is the second best fighter of all time behind George. Three, George uh, is John Jones. But, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a fantastic talent. Him versus Gaethje, you almost have to side with the champion. It's when someone tells you, hey, let's flip a coin, John, right? If it's heads, you win $33. And if it's tails, you win, you know, uh, $200. And it's like, oh, geez, I'm pretty tempted to take tails. It's a prize fight. We've seen this time and time again once the cage door shuts. Anything can happen. Justin Gaethje is a man that has all the skills in the world. So on a gambling perspective, yeah, I do have Justin Gaethje. 
as far as the straight pick perspective, I mean, you know what, if I'm willing to put my money on it, I guess I would I, I would have to say Justin Gaethje. But again, I'm not one of these guys that's out here touting, watch this uh, upset that's about to happen. You guys are all going to be amazed. Like, I can see it going either way. I just think there's way more question marks that Khabib has to answer. Justin Gaethje's getting better. He's hungry. He wants it. It's going to be a very, very fun fight. So what I will leave you with is UFC 251, I believe, is Masvidal versus uh, Usman. It is 1.3 million, right? Yep. Next card, they get half a million buys. I think it's Daniel Cormier versus DC3. And then the last pay-per-view was Adesanya. And I think he did 700,000 buys. Where, where, what do you think this pulls in, John? Um, I think that this one... See, the afternoon factor, I think, is is going to impact uh, this card as opposed to being in the traditional slot. But I still feel that this is one that... Like, that Gaethje-Ferguson number stunned me. And I think some of that also had to do with the timing of it happening. Like, it was, you know, one of the first major events that I think people were very hungry uh, for a UFC card at that time. I would say that this one is going to do... I, I, I see it finishing around, like, in between five and 700. I know that's, like, a wide range. I don't see this one being, like, your blockbuster million buys uh, for Khabib with, with Gaethje. Even though, individually, they have shown an ability uh, to draw on their own. But that's that's where I'm going to peg this one. I think it beats Miocic and Cormier, which I was disappointed. I thought that figure was going to be a lot higher. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I completely. I think that people want to see multiple good fights on a card as opposed to just one offering. Um, Adesanya, you know, he at least had a co-main event that was a title fight, technically a t- title fight, John Jones vacated. But you need a little bit of like a supporting factor. I'm not sure that Khabib has that, but... They're talking about him like he's a star, and he's going to have to sell a million pay-per-view buys. If it was a Saturday night, I think it's 850. Maybe they make a good run, like 850, 900. But the afternoon has just completely thrown me off. That's why I want to ask you. Just I, I can't gauge it. I don't know if it'll have be half as much as I think it'll be, half as much of you know it ends up being five or six hundred thousand, or uh, or if it won't matter. He's that big of a star, but I guess we'll see. That we will. Awesome stuff as always, Cody. Thank you so much for joining us. And that's going to wrap us up. We will be back Saturday early evening for our UFC 254 post show. Uh, Check it all out at postwrestling.com.